All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Mark chapter 1 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath a seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those. Open it up with us. Mark chapter 1 is where we'll start on this Easter morning. Glad that you are here. We're starting a new series this morning, a five-week series called Resurrection Matters, and I'm pretty pumped to get into it. Uh, so, uh, again, just, just glad you're here. I hope you brought your flipping fingers. We'll uh, flip around a little bit here this morning, uh, but we'll start off here in Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of Mark's story of Jesus' life. A couple years ago, I was leading a uh, room full of people through a discussion about the scriptures, and I asked them to describe to me the gospel, describe to me the good news of Jesus, what it was that God accomplished with his salvation. And so they were giving me answers, and I was cataloging them on a whiteboard behind me. So the answers were pretty typical, pretty, pretty much I think what you would expect kind of from our evangelical Christian kind of subculture, okay? And so the answers all centered around one of three things. Either the gospel is, salvation is that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. Or the gospel is, salvation is that if you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven after you die. Okay, after you die, one or two directions, instead of going to hell, you'll go to heaven. Or the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. And by far and away, that was the most popular one. And as I was calling them on the board, I wasn't expecting to do this, but I was taking kind of stock at it, and it kind of struck me. Something kind of struck a nerve. I was looking at it, and I asked the, the group, the, the room here, I, I said, out of all these, these reasons we just gave for, for what the gospel is and, and what salvation accomplished for us, how many of these reasons do you need a resurrection for? How many of these reasons do you need a risen Jesus for? And the answer was zero. I mean, absolutely zero of them. You don't need Jesus to raise again to, to, to receive forgiveness of your sins, right? Jesus died for your sins. There's no, there's no resurrection there available to it. Uh, Jesus loves you. You can go to heaven after you die. None of those intrinsically need a resurrection. And it struck me as, as odd that the resurrection seems like it should be so central to how we understand things. But yet, I mean, really, you could leave it out. And according to, I think, the consensus in the room, you'd still be a Christian, I mean, you wouldn't even really need to know about the resurrection. The most important thing you need to know is that Jesus died for your sins. And it kind of struck a nerve. And so for the next like, couple of years, I started paying real close attention as I heard people talking about the gospel, talking about salvation, youth pastors, pastors, all kinds of things. And what I noticed um, is that over and over and over and over again, I heard gospel presentations that didn't mention Jesus' resurrection. They started and ended with the cross. Jesus died for your sins. You're a sinner. When you die, you're going to either go to heaven or hell. The only way for you to go to heaven after you die is for someone to pay the price for your sins, pay the debt for your sins. Jesus has died for your sins. If you accept him, you can go to heaven. And I was struck. I mean, I mean, maybe right now you can think of certain gospel presentations that you maybe heard that didn't really emphasize the resurrection. You, you could almost leave it out. It wouldn't really matter. It really wouldn't mean much. Um, and I was struck over and over again. I mean, just countless times. Now, they didn't know I was analyzing them like this, right? But, but I mean, so many times, how can you talk about the good news of Christ? And there's not even a mention of the resurrection that Jesus is alive today. And if there was a mention, here's how it worked. It was very quick, very short. And it really played no significant role in the story, in the narrative, in the, the theology, in the salvation accomplished. So it was either that Jesus, his resurrection was proof that he was God and so could forgive your sins. Or it was proof that there's life after death 
And so that just like Jesus had life after death and went to heaven, you can have life after death and go to heaven. Or it was proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. In a sense, it was almost like the resurrection was viewed as a receipt, okay, if you will, as an analogy. The resurrection was a receipt that just confirmed a transaction had occurred. The transaction was your sins have been forgiven. And the resurrection didn't really hold much weight other than to testify that this had occurred. This had taken place. The transaction had occurred. Your, your sins had been forgiven. It was like a payment confirmation, if you will. And it struck me that, I mean, I would, if I was a wagering man, okay, I'd be willing to bet this morning in a lot of churches around the nation, the Easter sermon is about proving the resurrection happened apologetics okay so and i do think there's good historical reasons why jesus bodily raised from the dead i think that's how history the evidence would lead itself uh, i think that's where the, the, the evidence would point you towards but watch what happens right when that's how you take the resurrection it's proof that you don't really need it to do anything for you right you just need it to have happened again it's a receipt it's confirmation that yeah that took place so we just need to prove that it, it was it happened the thatness of it and what I've noticed, okay, what, what I've noticed over the past two to three to four years is in our subculture, okay, we have emphasized the cross. We are cross people. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the debt for our sins. He, he paid the price. He took on our guilt. We got his righteousness. We're cross people. But in the midst of being cross people, we've lost out on being resurrection people. The resurrection has, in a sense, gotten overshadowed so that we don't know what to do with it other than say it just confirmed what we already knew happened on the cross. Jesus loves us and he died for our sins. Dallas Willard, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he said that Christians, many Christians in his experience, are vampire Christians, which is a cool way to put it. It should have been zombie with all the zombie stuff happening right now, but vampire Christians. Because he said Christians are really only in it for Jesus' blood. I mean, they really just need that forgiveness, right? They don't want anything else, right? They don't want any commitments put on their life. They don't want any uh, communities placed around them, right? They just need the forgiveness. They just want the blood. Make the transaction happen. Give me the certificate. I'll put it in my back pocket. I'm good to go. Jesus died for my sins. Now, this is a problem. I think it's a big problem that, that maybe we're cross people and not resurrection people. The biggest problem, and, and this is kind of our, our, our big verse for this series, okay? Is that in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. According to Paul, the resurrection did something. And without the resurrection happening, salvation hasn't come. Salvation hasn't occurred. You need more than the cross. In fact, if you would look through the entire New Testament as a whole, and we'll do this over the next few weeks you'd find out that Jesus' resurrection, his one-off central event resurrection 2,000 years ago, is the foundation for a large amount of different aspects of the Christian life. For ethics, for the way we live now, for community, for the way we treat each other, for our future hope, for what we expect to have happen to us. And even, don't miss it, we'll see this, I think, next week, for forgiveness. Multiple times in the New Testament, Paul will say, you're forgiven because of Jesus' resurrection, not just because of the cross. You even need Jesus' resurrection to just be justified, to just be forgiven. I mean, think just historically about um, what's happening. I think you're hopefully familiar with the story. Jesus is crucified on Friday. And as, as, are his disciples really pumped? I mean, are they really like, yes, he died for our sins, we're good to go and go to heaven? 
No, they're, they're scared and they're hopeless. Right? The cross is not good news to them. But then the resurrection comes and they, they become enlivened with this bold faith, with this courageous, courageous mission. I mean, I think there's a reason that you and I worship on Sunday. Have you ever thought about why we worship on Sunday as Christians? So the earliest Christians were Jewish, okay? And, and they worshiped on Saturday. That was a big deal. As a Jew, you worshiped on the Sabbath. And, and it was a huge change when these loyal Jews started worshiping on Sunday. They did so because Sunday was the day that Jesus raised from the, uh, the dead. And every Sunday was like a, a mini Easter celebration. We've kind of lost out on that since. But, I mean, think about it. Every Sunday is an anniversary of the day that Jesus raised from the dead. He's risen. He's risen indeed. There's a reason we don't worship on Friday. And we worship on Sunday. We need to be resurrection people. What we're going to try to flesh out in this series over the next five weeks are different ways that the resurrection matters. Different ways that the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, is one-off being dead and coming back to life again changed the world, changed our lives, and affects our reality on a day-to-day basis. Because as we'll flesh out a little bit today, I think if you overemphasize the cross, and we're not trying to get rid of the cross, but if you overemphasize the cross and you leave out the resurrection, some serious unhealthy things start to happen in a Christian and in a Christian community. So why does the resurrection matter? We're, well, today we're going to start with um, this idea. That the resurrection matters. Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he was dead and now he's fully bodily alive, that matters because it is the launching of God's program to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You see, as we'll see in the scriptures, God has this grand plan, this grand design to transform creation. To set up his kingdom, his reign on the earth as it is in heaven. And the resurrection, when Jesus comes out of the grave, this is the end of the starting of that project. Of his project to bring heaven to earth. So look in Mark chapter 1 with me, okay? Mark chapter 1 verse 14 is where we will start. Mark 1 verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Mark says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. This is the good news according to Jesus, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus shows up and says, all right, we've got some good news happening. And the first thing he says is the time is fulfilled. What he's referring to here is he's saying all these promises that God has given his people in the past are now coming true. In my work, in my lifetime, in my ministry, The time is being fulfilled. These promises are coming true. God is making good on the things he said he would do. So for the Jewish story, okay, the Jewish understanding of history and salvation, they understood that God had created a good world, a very good world, but that that good world had gone horribly wrong. It had been infiltrated with sin and death. All kinds of evil things had entered into creation. And so um, if you see people sinning, people rebelling against God, okay, you, you, you're recognizing something's gone wrong with creation. If you've ever been to a funeral, okay, something's gone wrong with creation. That's not how God created the world to be. If you've gotten sick or had a loved one get sick, if you've seen abuse or poverty or war, these are all things that weren't meant to be in God's creation, if you've struggled with addiction or broken relationships. Again, these are, these are all things that have horribly gone wrong in God's creation. But the Jewish people thought that God had promised them that one day he would show up and he would fix things. 
he would, in a sense, establish his kingdom on earth. He would reclaim earth. He would take it back over so that it looked the way he wanted it to look. Now, a good scripture that reflects this is Isaiah chapter 52, 7 through 10. I'll read it for you, okay? Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. It reads like this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news or gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God is in control. He's setting up his kingdom. Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, ye waste plans of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. He's flexed. That's what, that's what that is here. He's bared his holy arm. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, every year I uh, walk through the Old Testament systematically with a group of high schoolers, okay? And I'm constantly struck by a fact, and I try to point this out to them. In the Old Testament, there is virtually nothing about what happens to you and I after we die. I mean, it's almost non-existent, to the point where a lot of scholars would say they wonder if the ancient Jews even believed in an afterlife. It's just not there. It's not important to them. And I think you do see it here and there, and I think that the Jewish people would say, our God's so big that he'll take care of us in the afterlife, right? But it's not on their radar. It's not what they're concerned about. They're concerned about what's happening here and now in the present. And that seems to be, in the Old Testament, what God's concerned about. I mean, have you read the prophets? God never comes to the Israelites and says, hey, you're all going to die, and there's one or two places to go. God comes to the Israelites and says, hey, look at how wrong creation looks. Do something about it. This really makes me upset. This really makes me mad that there's this poverty, there's this abuse, there's this war, there's this violence, there are these broken relationships. And he promises over and over and over again to one day show up, the day of the Lord, and to do something about it, to reclaim his creation in history. The Jewish people call this the kingdom of God. God's reign and rule breaking into an evil world. So the world has gone wrong. It's in this old age. It's been infiltrated and enslaved by sin and death. And God says, one day I'm going to show up and I'm going to change things. I'm going to take back control of what's rightfully mine. I'll fix what's gone wrong in creation. Jesus shows up and he says what? The time is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's happening here and now. With me and my work. I'm the king. I'm bringing the kingdom. Now what's happened, I think to most of us, is 2,000 years have really distracted us from this announcement. Have distracted us from the fact that Jesus thought this was happening in his lifetime through his work. We have, in a sense, exported all of God's salvation, all of God's work, either to the end of our lives or to the end of history entirely. For Jesus, though, God was accomplishing something real in history during his lifetime, through his work, through his ministry. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel, the good news of what? God is showing up through me and setting up his kingdom. The kingdom of God is about bringing heaven to earth. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? Anybody? Okay, Matthew 6, also in Luke. Jesus says... Your kingdom come, he teaches disciples to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, in a sense, the kingdom of God is, we would say, directly opposite of, I think, how some of us 
and, and how some of us have in the past understood salvation, right? Which is all about things on earth going to heaven. For the kingdom of God, it's all about heaven coming to earth. God himself comes to earth. And he brings heaven. If you read through the Gospels, this is all Jesus is concerned about. It's all he's preaching about. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And the way he acts makes it seem like he thinks, again, he's bringing the kingdom of God. So he will encounter things that don't belong in creation. And watch every time what Jesus does, he gets rid of them. So demon, goodbye. Sickness, no thank you. Death, that's annoying. Come back to life. These things don't belong in God's good creation. And I've come to bring heaven to earth, to make earth look like what God desires. The reign of God breaking in to earth. What's happening with Jesus and his ministry is literally the old world of sin and death is being ripped apart at its seams. There's this battle motive in the Gospels, okay, where Jesus is butting up against the kingdoms of this world. And he's being victorious and being victorious and being victorious. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he's hung up on a tree. And the disciples run away with their tails between their legs, scared and hopeless, thinking that all has been lost. Because they weren't looking for a cross. They weren't looking for someone to die for their sins. They were looking for a kingdom and they were looking for a king. And a dead king is a failed king. In fact, there are lots of first century people who thought they were king, who thought they were the Messiah, the Christ. And they ended up on trees. And their followers ended up moving on. Because they obviously weren't the king, bringing the kingdom of God. But something happens to Jesus, okay? He, again, bodily comes out of the grave, this full, new, physical life. And it's still about the same thing. The kingdom of God, what his whole life's been about. Flip with me a little bit to the left, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. So this is after Jesus is resurrected, okay? And this is a good kind of glimpse at how the Gospels end after Jesus' resurrection. Perhaps surprising to us. The Gospels don't end by Jesus resurrecting and saying, Ta-da, I was God. And they don't end by Jesus resurrecting and saying, Ta-da, I died for your sins. You can go to heaven after you die. Behave yourselves, okay? Stay safe, stay calm. It ends in a much different way. Look in Matthew 28, okay? Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's the funniest line in the Bible to me, okay? So resurrected Jesus, and some people are like, you know what? I think I've heard about this trick. I'm not sure. <laughs> some, some doubted. <laughs> some doubted. Okay, so Jesus came and said to them, watch what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He makes a royal claim and says, I'm in control. I have been resurrected. And then watch what he says. Go, make disciples, baptize them in my name. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says this, hey, the project, this kingdom thing, it's still on. I'm back. Better than ever. All authority has been given to me. Let's move. Remember, we've been talking about this kingdom thing. I've been sending you out in Paris to go cast out demons and heal people. We're going big time now. I'm resurrected. The kingdom of God has started. 
Heaven is breaking into earth, and the disciples have a job to do. Their heralds are going in, announcing the victory that Christ has won over sin and over death, over the kingdoms of this world. They're announcing his enthronement as Lord. And this is what you see throughout the entire rest of the New Testament. Go to Acts chapter 2 with me. Acts chapter 2. This is the very, 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 very first Christian sermon. Okay, Acts chapter 2. This is Peter preaching. If you remember the story, the Holy Spirit falls. They start speaking other languages. People ask him if they're drunk. Peter says no. Watch his excuse, though. He says, not because we don't drink, just because it's in the morning. Okay? We're just not those kind of drinkers. <coughs> A couple of you. All right. What's funny is... Never mind. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. All right, this is chapter, uh, verse 22. All right, this is Peter's very first sermon, very first Christian sermon. Watch how he interprets, watch the meaning he draws from what's happened in Jesus. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Not the nicest sermon. Okay, he's pointing fingers. You killed this guy. 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you won't abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Again, royal terms. He's referring to 2 Samuel 7 where God comes to David and says, one of your kids, I'm going to make the eternal ruler of the world. And David goes, well, that's, that's nice. <laughs> the Christian said, that kid, his name was Jesus. He's taken that throne 2,000 years ago. He was inaugurated. He sat down at the right hand of God. He foresaw and spoke about, verse 31, the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having a seat of authority and power, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Reign, watch this, we'll see this again. Reign until the kingdom is complete. Until all your enemies are sitting under your feet. And then here's his big so what. Verse 36 and 37. Or just 36. If you don't have this underlined or marked and you have a pen, do so. Verse 36. This is his conclusion to the sermon. Here's the big money shot. Okay, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him with the resurrection, with the exaltation of his right hand. God has made him both Lord, King, and Christ, the Messiah, the Jewish King. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's sermon, not about what will happen after you die, not about going to heaven. It's about a guy named Jesus becoming the king of the entire universe, being enthroned of the Lord as the Lord over the universe. And go read every single sermon in Acts. None of them will start off with scaring you with hell. 
Okay? Not one of them say, there's this place called hell. If you die there, if you die today, you might go there. They all tell the story of Jesus, and they all end with the same point. He's the king. So you should probably obey him and find life in him. There's work to be done. God is doing something new in our world, and you might want to join it. He is the king. He is the Lord. God has made him and me crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Flip to Acts or uh, 1 Corinthians 15, to your right. This is the last place we'll flip, I promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be in this chapter a lot uh, during this series. This is Paul's great chapter on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. One more passage, and then I'll bring it home for us, okay? We'll pick it up in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Paul's going to say the same thing here. He says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Zero in here in verse 24, okay? Then comes the end. So Christ has been resurrected. In the future, others will come with him. Then comes the end when he delivers to God the Father. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. The timeline that Paul would have us see right now is that Jesus has been resurrected and he is currently fighting, defeating, putting down every authority, every rule, every power that doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. And when he's done, at the end, he's going to offer it up to the Father. Say, here's your kingdom. Here's your creation. I've won it back for you. At the end, he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This sounds like Peter again, in uh, quoting Psalm 110. The last enemy, verse 26, to be destroyed is death. He must reign. The implication here is that he is reigning. He's reigning and he's putting his enemies under his feet. Again, the old world of sin and death is being ripped apart at the seams as Christ and the life of God burst in heaven onto earth in communities and cities and relationships and hearts. As the kingdom of God arrives, the resurrection is this decisive start of the, the worldwide rule of Jesus. So let's be clear here. I'm not sure we've, we've all really even thought through completely the implications of just this bodily resurrection. The scriptures would have us believe this, okay? Jesus is fully bodily, physically dead, and then fully bodily, physically resurrects. And we say Christ is risen. Right? Because he didn't die again. The same Christ who was touched and ate and was with the disciples 2,000 years ago after his resurrection, according to the scriptures and Christian faith, is still alive right now. As alive as any human being ever was. He's still physical. He's still got a body. He's the human incarnation of God himself. Sitting at the Father's right hand. Jesus is still alive. And he started the work of the kingdom. If you look at the very beginning of Acts, Acts starts with saying, this is what Jesus continues to teach and do through the church. He's still moving. He's still active. Things are still happening. Christ has resurrected. He's taken the throne as Lord. And his kingdom continues to go out. 
then the world will never be the same. And you and I are invited into that experience, into that, that project. You see, the resurrection is not just about a glorious future, but a meaningful present. Christ's work has entered into creation 2,000 years ago. Again, don't miss the, the historicalness of this. 2,000 years ago, it happened. It started. Oftentimes, I think... So I was reading an author this week who said this. He said, when we ignore Jesus' kingdom talk, we're being nice to him. Because it's kind of embarrassing he was so wrong. He seemed to think the kingdom was starting in his lifetime. It doesn't look like there's much evidence of his kingdom and work, at work, right? I mean, there's still a lot of war, there's still a lot of evil, there's still a lot of wicked things that happen in the world. Again, I think 2,000 years have kind of made us backpedal and walk away a little bit from this stuff. But maybe we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Maybe we've been so apologetic about the Crusades and the Inquisitions that we forget other things that the church has accomplished, beautiful, creative, powerful things through the witness of the resurrection. I think of Eastern communism falling because of a Polish pope who had the courage to stand up and inspire others to follow him. Think about apartheid in Africa, South Africa. And for years, people said the only way apartheid would end is in this huge bloodbath. But an African archbishop stands up, prays three hours a day, and ends apartheid without blood. Amen. Gets victims and offenders to come into the same room and confess their sins to each other. Let's apologize. Let's confess our sins to the past, church. But let's also stand up for the work that Christ has done, is doing, and continues to do through us. Go to the library, look up where hospitals come from. Ask yourself, who stayed in town when the plagues came through? The Christians. Who takes care of the orphans and the widows? The Christians. Christ is alive. He's at work. The Spirit is moving. You and I are invited into that. Something happening, something real, it started 2,000 years ago and it's continuing to this day. There's good news for you and I. But I think when we emphasize the cross and overlook the resurrection, when we, when we put it all about going to heaven after we die and about being forgiven of our sins, again, this unhealthy balance starts to take place. Here's my, my, my theory, okay? The cross is easy. The cross is easy and asks very little of us. With the resurrection comes responsibility. Comes a task. Comes things to do, adventures to take, danger that might come our way. The cross is, is escapism. I mean, we're forgiven, and again, we'll, we'll sit in our corner and wait it out until we die. The resurrection beckons us to a whole new world. A world on the front lines of what God is doing. It gives us permission, for some of us, I think, to go out and do something. So there's, there's good news. I mean, there's good news for us to experience which is that the resurrection life, this life of the age to come, eternal life is available now in the present. You and I are invited into that. We have this personal responsibility to grow in following Jesus and experiencing that life. What this means is that for a cross person, perhaps you're just forgiven of greed. For a resurrection person, you're not only forgiven, but you're freed from greed. The very power of materialism and consumerism is broken in your life because the kingdom of God is here and it's working in your heart and working through you. You're not just forgiven, you're freed, you're transformed, you're used as a vessel to go out into the world. 
You have responsibility. You have a role to play now. You have life to experience now. Cross people oftentimes just sit in a corner and they wait it out. Resurrection people go meet their debts proudly. Fighting on the front lines for justice to be taken place, for, for, for people to be protected, for the voiceless to be, to be heard, for the people who are abused to be, to be taken care of. Resurrection people don't just feed homeless people. Resurrection people ask the question of why are there still homeless people? What can we do about larger overarching systems of injustice? How can we transform and redeem the world around us? And resurrection people, I think, have a better sense of what the church is for. So watch this. In my experience, it's all too easy to think that the church, a church service, is a memorial service. So we come in, right, and we remember this guy who lived a long time ago. He was a cool guy. Had some good ideas, but an untimely death, right? But he still lives in our heart. But catch this, right? Don't, 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 don't lose the actual gist of the resurrection. He doesn't just live in our hearts. He's actually alive. You get it? He's, he's, al- I mean, he's alive. As, as alive as I'm alive, he's still alive. He's still working. And the project that he started 2,000 years ago is still going on. He would come to us and say the same thing that he said to the disciples in Matthew 28. Go. Let's do this. The kingdom is here. What are we waiting for? You have a task. You have a mission. And resurrection people, they don't get confused about their community either. You see, what I've noticed is, is cross people sometimes think of the church as mutual Facebook friends. So the only thing that really connects us is that we both know the same person. Right? I mean, I have no real connection or commitment to your life or your growth or your, your holiness or anything like that. We happen to both be forgiven by the same person. If it's convenient to me, right, we'll talk, we'll get along, those kind of things. But apart from that, there's no intrinsic connection to you and I. Resurrection people, though, say, oh, no, there's, there's stuff that needs to happen and we need each other. We're a family. We're a community. We're responsible for each other. Having somebody else happens to me. When they grieve, I grieve. When they go hungry, I go hungry. When they need help, I'm there. When they call, I answer. There's a community, and you understand that the need for it. The kingdom of God is about life flowering around us in an evil and dark world. It's about an alcoholic who slowly but surely recovers and falls and recovers and he's joined around him with people worshiping Christ and he slowly but surely finds life finds freedom the kingdom of God is about a relationship between a, a, a father and a son or a husband and a wife or a brother and a brother being restored about forgiveness happening forgiveness that can be explained otherwise and when we see those things the scriptures would teach us to go that is heaven appearing on earth the life of God flowering up among us in a dry and weary land. And you and I are called to participate in that. The resurrection is not just a receipt, my friends. The resurrection is the goods itself. It's the last step. Among many things we'll see in the next five weeks, first thing, it's the last step. It's, a, it's the, the final step in God's launching of his kingdom project. Why does Jesus need to be alive? Because we need a king. We need someone to direct us. The church is not a memorial service. When we come here, we come here to worship one who's alive and present with us, like he says in Matthew 28, and we come to get direction from him. 
Where do you want us to go now? What are we doing now? We're invited to, to join in. The resurrection matters. It accomplishes something. And the more that you and I can start to understand and live in that resurrection reality, the more that we can be resurrection people. I mean, even if you look at art, right? So the Eastern Church, historically, globally, they never really got away from the resurrection. And you can watch this happen in art. So in the Eastern Church, most of their icons or symbols are Jesus resurrected and glorified in power and glory. If you go to the West, Catholics and Protestants, you see crosses. I mean, it's a pretty glaring difference. And in the East, they don't talk about the cross a whole lot like we do. They talk about the resurrection a whole lot. And over here, we talk about the cross a whole lot. And, and sometimes, I mean, catch this. On Easter celebration, so like mini Easter every Sunday, I've been at churches where they don't mention that Jesus is alive. Why are we meeting on Sunday? Because he's alive. He's risen. There's things to do. There's, there's things to be accomplished. There's life to be had, life to be found. There's life to be found. Resurrection matters. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed.